0: Before I speak, I'd like to publicly make a statement or an announcement because we talk about leadership all the time and when I was a young boy growing up in Darwin, I was always looking for leadership within my family, around me, in my community. And I didn't know who was speaking tonight, but the little, small, beautiful old lady over there, Kathy Mills, she was my hero when I was a little boy. She was my mentor. She was my role model who taught me to stand up and speak truth. And we have a lot of people in the community that call themselves leaders. But when I was little and I was looking for a real leader, this old lady over here, that was the only one who I seen standing up and speaking truth for our children and speaking truth for our community. And I just want to publicly acknowledge her in front of all of you, and I'd like you all to, before you clap, I'd like you all to congratulate her, not because she's a beautiful lady, But her whole life has been a struggle. Everything about her journey has been about her children, her community, her people. I lived at her house when I was a little boy. And I just want to publicly acknowledge how truly great this lady is. And I'd like you to all put your hands together because you have a gem sitting right in front of you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, honey, Kathy. You are my hero. Now I've got some notes. Not because I don't know my story, but because I have a time frame. <laughs> so my name is David Cole. I was born and raised in Larrake Land in Darwin, just down the road at the old hospital. My early years, I lived in Wanguri up until the age of two, two till Cyclone Tracy hit. Then we were evacuated. When we returned, we moved into a house in Jingley. And that's where I spent the remainder of all my childhood. And my mother still lives there. I was raised by my mother and four sisters. They were my carers. They were my mentors. They were my teachers. They were my protectors. They were my discipliners, especially the discipline bars. But above all, they were were not just my mother and my sisters. They were my father. They were my best friends. And I'm forever indebted to them for making me the man I am today. A single mother with five kids growing back back in the time, you know, my mother had to work a lot of jobs. So she worked about three jobs. She started at 5.30 in the morning and didn't get home till 8.30. So as a family, we had to work together. We had to work hard and we didn't have any choice. Um, we had our chores that we had to do every day before we went out and had some fun. Um, Richie might remember this one. Brother Richie, you welcomed you to use the country. It was another one. Him and I used to run out of Auntie Kathy's house many times when she got wild. But, um, you know, I, I, I had to rake the leaves. It was like my mother's yard was like an 850-metre square yard, so it was really big, and two-thirds of that was frangipani leaves. So I had to rake that every day before I could go with my mates, and I always had all my friends at the front gate. Come on, man, we want to go creek. So that was my childhood growing up, you know, with my mother and my sisters working hard and um, working together and always looking out for each other. But most of my childhood was outdoors. I had a passion for sport. I loved, um, I loved footy and rugby when I was young and I had a dream of, you know, I like most kids who play sport, you know, you want to you want to try and be the best and, and get to the top and my only motivation was my family. My only motiv- motivation was my mother and my sisters um, and, and that's why I had a passion to try and get into sport um, but when I was in primary school, I injured my knee when I was really young and um, the doctor said you can't play any contact sport and you probably can't ever play sport again so I took up baseball and basketball and... and um, and, and, and said goodbye to football and rugby. Um, but as you can see, I'm not built for um, basketball. I should have stuck with baseball. I didn't grow tall enough. But um, basketball became my choice and my love and my passion. Um, and it's, it's ironic that tonight, the first real coach I ever had, is um, in the audience here, Steve McGuigan, um, is my first coach that I had when I was a young boy playing basketball. And he was more than just a coach. He was a, He was a mentor. He was, a, he was a, a role model and he was somebody who taught me about life as well. And I thank you, Steve, wherever you are out there. Um, so basketball, basketball allowed for me to see the whole country. I travelled the whole country playing basketball. I met many amazing people, um, lifelong friendships, and I, I got to travel overseas with it and enjoyed going overseas. Um, but I think the best thing that came out of my basketball part was it gave me an opportunity to get a scholarship at a really good school down south. So it allowed for me to step out of Darwin and see that there was um, a, big, a bigger world out there and understand a bit more. But one of the most memorable things when I was young was was I didn't have a father in my life. And like any boy, you're always looking for those male role models. And my mother's brother was my closest thing I had to a father. So the years I spent going fishing with him and taking me out of bush and teaching me about life and and disciplining me as well, um, he, he taught me a lot of good values. And, and he... he very right beside basketball, he he was my saviour. Without either of those two, I think um, I could have gone down a really bad pathway. When I was young growing up, we um, we grew up in domestic violence, um, and and that pain affects everybody. It affects you know the the, the mother, it affects the children, it affects everybody involved. Um, and our priority as a family between my mother, my sisters, and myself was just to protect each other and look out for each other. Um, and a lot of my childhood childhood was actually a bit of a blur. I can remember pictures of good stuff and bad stuff, but it was generally a blur because of the, um, the violence that we we'll, were we'll, we'll have being subjected to. Um, so as a young boy, you dream, you, everyone has dreams. Um, my dream was to break out. My dream was to break my family out of this situation and free my family. And sports was hopefully an option for that. Um, Later on, I I learnt that the mine was probably a better option, but um, sport was certainly something that I saw as a way out to try and give my mother and my sister something better. So the other option was growing strong and just becoming a strong man so I could protect them. And I remember when I was transitioning from um, a a young boy into a young man's body, um, uh, the perpetrator in our house left, which was really good for us. It was really good for all of us, but it was probably good for him as well um, because um, his time was up. So um, in more ways than one, because, you know, when you're going through that stuff and you're in that pain, you think of every option to get out of there. And as a little boy, I even contemplated killing him to free my mother and my sisters from the pain. I'm glad I didn't. When I was 21, I had my first child, my daughter. Um, She taught me what unconditional love was about the moment she came into the world. She showed me what it was about to be a man, to love, care for and protect your, your baby. Um, and although her mother and I separated, we, we raised her together still, and she, she, she's grown into a beautiful woman, and she has two children. I've got two amazing grandchildren now. Um, but she turned my life around and she made me realise that, um, you know, it wasn't about me. And that's the problem, when we have children, We have to stop thinking about us we have to think about them and if we all did that we'd have a better society not long after that i met my my wife um and um we had three more kids two boys and a girl i have two boys and two girls um and they're my world they're everything they're everything that my wife and i set out to achieve which was to give them a happy safe loving environment and if if that's all we give a child we can give every child hope. That's all they need to be able to grow: is that love and protection and that guidance. And growing with our babies is the, the richest part of our life that we've um we've enjoyed, both as individuals and, and together. And the only objective I ever the only objective I ever had when I became a father was just to be a good father. It was to be the it was to be the father that I never had. But it was also to be the father that I always wanted. Um, and sometimes we go through life and we miss out on stuff. But if we can pay attention to what we would have liked, that we missed out on, and we can pass that on to our babies, we can ensure that we um, we, we heal the wounds and we pass on the goodness, not the badness. So 25 years ago, I met my wife, and um, she said to me, what do you want to do with yourself? Though I'm 48, and I still don't know what I want to do with myself. But... Um, I said, I, I want to help kids who've been in the situation that you and I have been in. I just want to help kids that have gone through what we've been through and give them an opportunity to, um, to get the support that they need. And she said, well, I'll walk with you. And I said, well, let's do something. Let's do something. Let's, we didn't know what it was. We said, well, Let's just try anything. So I said to her, okay, look, let me ask you a question. If we did this for 20 years and saved one life, is it worth it? And her answer was yes. So in 2005, we established the Bolognese Foundation. Bolognese, in my literature language, means creation. And that's what we're about. The creation of strong youth, strong culture, and strong leaders for a strong future. In 2006, we ran our first pilot camp. Unaware of what we were doing, no idea. We just took six boys out who were suffering and struggling in life. Um, the, um, the, The moment we were on that camp, even though we had no idea what we were doing at the time, we could see the shift in the children. We could see their their whole energy shifting. We could see their mannerism shifting. And we, we saw all the anger subside. Like Timmy said, finding the calm place, getting them to connect with their heart and, and empowering their mind. We saw, the, we saw the shift immediately. On our second camp, we were on the beach and I had a young fellow sitting next to me on this side. And I, I asked him, how are you feeling right now? And this was after we'd just done a healing session and he fell into my arms and he cried and while he was crying it's not running down his front of his shirt he was sobbing and while he was sobbing he said these words he said uncle thank you for bringing me out here because this weekend I planned to kill myself this weekend I had the rope the time the place everything prepared by you bringing me out here it's the first time in my life I realized I could be kind to others it's also the first time in my life I realised that others could be kind to me. And he finished off by saying, and it's the first time in my life that I realised I had a purpose. And, and that young man's still alive today. Um, so I went home to my wife and I said, remember the 20 years, one life story? And she said, yeah, I said, forget it. It's already started. We can't stop. We have to keep going. So we persevered on, not knowing what we we're doing. No funds, no, no, no we had nothing. But we just kept going because we realised that the program, even though it was in its infancy, had something there special. And it took me many years later, it took me nearly 20 years later, to learn about the, the, the brain and understanding that what we were creating out there was a safe, culturally safe environment for the children to let that frontal lobe come down. And when that's down, the heart's open. When the heart's open, we can plant the seeds and we can share the tools to help them. And so we, we, we continued on from there. Now, one of the challenges I throw out to the uh, kids on the program is the challenge of the warrior. Now, don't freak out. It's not, they're not gonna come out and hunt you down. The challenge of the warrior is this. The challenge of the warrior is the warrior that will stand up and break the cycle. The warrior that will take what has gone wrong and make it right and break those cycles for their children. And that's the challenge of the warrior that I give these kids. And one day we're at the show and these two young men were walking towards us. And they both had babies on their shoulders. We're watching them walk towards us. I'm like, "Look at these solid young fellows." And as we got closer, they're like, "Uncle," and I was like, "Who are you?" They're like, "We came from the camp." I said, "Oh yeah, I remember your face. Forgot your name. How are yous? Good." I looked up at their babies. I didn't say anything else about the program. I asked them one question. I said, "Are you being the warrior?" And both of these young men, I won't say with a word. They said, "Timmy's already said it." And um, one of us in trouble is enough. Um, but they had their sons on their shoulders and he looked me in the eye and he looked at, he looked at me and he said yeah and he looked up at his son and my wife and I walked away and as we walked away we stopped and we turned around and we watched these two young men and these boys were at risk and we watched them walking off and as they were walking off they both were, they, they had this pray out walk and they had these babies on their shoulders and I said to my wife in that moment that's what it's all about that's a cycle broken right there. And, and, and I'm sure we'll never see those kids on our program. And that's what I want. So, so we strive to improve the program and we spent many years working on it. We're, the reality is we've never been funded more than 25% of what we need to do to do it properly. Um, yet we've achieved amazing outcomes. The, the primary focus of our program has always been about suicide prevention. Now, we've taken out nearly 800 kids to our healing camp. 85% of those kids had either attempted or had suicide ideology at the time that we met them. And in 15 years, I'm sad to say that we have been to one funeral out of those 800 children. And that's one too many for me, because even that one funeral was preventable. But what that tells me is that the program works. The program works, it's successful, and we've achieved outcomes that we were well beyond our dreams when we set out to create something to help our children at risk. I just want to rattle off the position of our children. Because this talk, although it's my story, it's not about me. 85% of the children on our program have either attempted or considered suicide. 90% of the children are involved in substance abuse. Close to 95% of the children are failing education. Over 60% of the children are caught up in crime. And when I sit and talk to these kids about their crime and, and, and the stuff they're getting up to and, and the reasons and what's motivating them, other than boredom or friends losing, uh, leading them astray, a majority of the answers is food. A lot of children are stealing just to survive and eat. And, and that's, a, that's a direct result of the poverty that a lot of our people are being subjected into. Um, and, 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 and right beside that is the intergenerational trauma. Now, it's kind of ironic that we have the highest suicide rates per capita in the world in Darwin. And we have the highest stolen generation descendants also living in Darwin. Because the trauma that our elders were subject to, that, they, that was inflicted upon them, is the very trauma that we're dealing with in our community today. So when you see a child out there in pain, don't judge. Don't, don't look at them like they are worthless. Like Timmy said, they all have a heart. They are all unique and they are all beautiful. Some of the most hardest kids that I've seen slandered across the papers as Darwin's worst child come out to our program and they are the most respectful, helpful, beautiful children that I've ever met in my life. We leave our wallets and everyone around with these kids. They don't touch it. They have the respect because we give them the love. I I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Bruce Perry. He's he's, he's one of the world's most renowned child psychologists. And I I said to Bruce, I said, Bruce, we have a problem. I said, we can't get funding because we have a circle and the government has square boxes. And because our circle doesn't fit in their square boxes, we're being overlooked for funding because they don't get it. Nobody's looking at the outcomes. Nobody's looking at the success. Instead of going, wow, great success. We need to support this better. What we're getting is, how are you doing that? And because we can't translate it, we're overlooked. So what Bruce said to me, I said, Bruce, do I need to shape the circle into a square? And Bruce got in my face. He said, David, you listen to me very carefully. He said, do not shape the circle into the square. You keep the circle because the circle works. And he said, it took me 35 years through science and chemistry of the brain to learn what the American Indian elders told him 35 years ago. And I said, what's that, Bruce? Relationships. And that's what it is. But it's not just our relationship with the kids on the program. Most of the kids you see on the street that are struggling and running away from violence or, or issues, okay, they, they need love. And it's not easy to go up and approach any children, but it's it's easy to not judge them. And sometimes it's okay to check on them and ask if you see somebody, are you okay? Check on them. These children need the love. So in 2012, 2013, um, a couple of uh, uh, the Northern Territory Government and the University of New South Wales evaluated our program. Both program, uh, Both evaluations came back and identified that the program, in fact, does prevent suicides. The program does reduce substance abuse. And the program does turn children's lives around, gets them back engaged in school, engage with family, and has an impact on changing their their thinking process. And and thank you. So in 2014, the government cut 100% of our funding. I kid you not. So if you want me to talk from the heart, I don't need notes. I'll talk from the heart. Our children are dying as a result of 232 years of genocide. We have the highest suicide rates per capita right here in this location. They have an election coming up. I'm not asking you to go and advocate for us. But these guys need to be held accountable. They're making decisions that are affecting our children's lives and keeping our babies alive. And the the repercussions of that is that the antisocial behaviour that goes out into our community is a byproduct of our pain, and that affects all of you. So, if we're going to talk from the heart and talk about being real, we need to stand up as a community. We need to unite and we need to get around our babies, all our children. I don't care if they're black, white, Greek, or Asian. All our children need love. All our children need hope. And that's all a child needs. We've taken kids out there and we've given just a little bit of hope. You know, and I had one of our youth workers pull up beside a kid a couple of years ago and he, he, he rang me up and the worker rang me up and he was a bit upset and I said, what? He said, I just pulled up beside one of the kids who's driving a car that's worth about 40 grand more than mine. And, and, and for me, that, it's not that the kid had a flash car, it's that that kid was embroiled in drugs, he was caught up in antisocial behaviour, but he saw enough to see hope and he turned his own life around like Timmy said, we don't have to be the saviours, but we can just put our hand out to these children and we can give them hope. And that's what I'm asking you to do, down Just put your hand out to these children and give them hope. Thank you for your time.